Welcome back. This is the Game Dev Show. I'm Luke Greenaway. This week, I am joined by Fergus Urquharts, the founder of Black Isle, co-founder of Obsidian, uh, legendary studios behind Planescape Torment, Fallout 1, Fallout 2, Fallout New Vegas, <laughs> Knights of the Old Republic 2, Neverwinter Nights 2, and then more recently, Pillars of Eternity, Outer Worlds. We've even got South Park Stick of Truth in there. Mm-hmm. Um, Fergus, incredible list of you know RPGs, accolades. Welcome. How you doing? Doing pretty good. A little tired. The the, the dogs decided that they needed to bark at nothing at about 5 a.m. this morning. But other than that, doing pretty good. <laughs> good, good. There's nothing worse when your dogs start kicking off. And uh... <laughs> and then you go to the window. You go to the window and like, what are you barking at? What dogs have you got? Um, we have, uh, they're called uh, Tibetan Terriers, which oddly, they're not even Terriers. They're like little sheepdogs. 30, 35 pounds. They're a lot of fun. Oh, uh, they're, they're a little too smart for their own good. But other than that, they're definitely <laughs> a lot of fun. Let's dive in because obviously you've got, you've got an exceptional career in the games industry. And what would be great is to actually start before you even joined, we joined okay. started in the industry, doing a bit of stalking. I saw on your LinkedIn where you mentioned your degrees. You actually mm-hmm. say you were almost, almost a Bachelor yep. of Bioengineering um, at San Diego UC. What happened? Why the almost? <laughs> it really all was because, I mean, I was super interested in engineering and I was Sadly, I was, I think I was only like three classes short from actually getting the degree. It was, and, and one of them was like a sociology class. It wasn't even an engineering class. It was like one, just one like um, general education thing that I needed to take. No, what happened was I started in 91. I was hired for summer playtesting at Interplay. And so where I got just, you know, I got, to, it was really my, my start in the industry and it was, it was super interesting. And that's kind of when I first started to meet other people in, in you know, in, in games. Um, one of the first games I tested was actually called RPM Racing, which I think was Silicon and Synapse's first uh, Super Nintendo game. And then Silicon and Synapse then became Blizzard. So it was one. So that's how I kind of met all of them like super early on. Um, and then I did that for two summers and I was still going to school. And it's about 80, 90 miles from where Interplay was to San Diego. And so for my last quarter there, I was trying to work full-time because I got hired full-time as a producer at Interplay uh, for like my third summer. And I was trying to work full-time and also commute 80, 90 miles to school, which was stupid. So I didn't do very well that quarter. (laughs) I think I don't know if I passed a single class. Those were my last three classes. And I don't know, I just decided after that that I was going to pursue games. And um, my dad was pretty pissed about it. But I think, you know, I obviously, luckily, success came quickly. I'm, you know, a lot of, like I said, a lot of luck, not so much. I mean, I worked hard, but it was a great time in the industry to start. And that's kind of where one of the reasons why I moved so, kind of so quickly and my dad cooled off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you look back now. I, it's, you know, it's crazy, isn't it, that... um it just wasn't considered like a career, Mm-mm. you know, like back then. And I all. think it's so mad now because you look at it now and if you were going to go into any kind of entertainment medium, you would say, well, look, you know, mm-hmm. go for a degree in computer science or video game development or graphic design or animation mm-hmm. because it's like such a massive opportunity, video games. Weirdly, though, like QA, for example, hasn't really changed, right? You, you still have, you know, these... Zero hour contracts, and you have people who just. I used. To, I did it at Sega for a couple of years, like three months on, a couple of months off, three months on. Do you think playtesting is the same opportunity now as it was when you got into it? I think it's where you do the testing that makes it different. So I think. It, mm. I think it was. 
it was different back then. I mean, it was it really was more of a part time job and it was more mostly college students and, you know, and it was small. And, and, and what's weird back then is as a tester, you had multiple games you were testing rather than there being multiple testers on one game, which was sort of an interesting difference. Right. But I think the other difference, I think, and this holds true to today, is that if you are a tester at a developer, that is a very different experience than being a tester at a publisher. A developer, I mean, you're more part of the organization. You are embedded with the team. Most of us, you know, well, we would hire, Obsidian would hire sort of temp testers from now on. And we were very, always very upfront, like, hey, this is a six month thing. Most of our testers were, you know, were kind of in test for us as long as they really wanted to be there. And I think the other thing about being a tester and developer is there's just way more opportunity for growth. You know, Brandon Adler, who is the game director on The Outer Worlds 2, um, he started in test, you know, with us. His head of uh, director of gameplay on it, um, Matt Singh, uh, was started in test. And then he started being a producer on the DLC for Fall New Vegas. So I think that's the difference. Interplay at the time was just transitioning to being a publisher, was still mostly a developer. And I think that's more of why the fe- it was a different feeling than, you know, how uh, a publisher, just a straight up publisher feels now in test. So my experience in testing was Sega. And mm-hmm. as a publisher, it was a conveyor belt of titles and like mm-hmm. some of the titles we worked on. And it's interesting that the friends that I made there, there was a group of us who worked on Football Manager as testers. And, you know, 10 years later, we've all been groomsmen for each other at our weddings. <laughs> and it's like the, this bond that you build in QA is very, um, it's very interesting. It's very mm-hmm. quite surreal. I think it's a closer bond than you form in, well, I've ever formed in any other role with, yeah. any, with any other team. I think you go through crunch together. You go uh-huh. through like the highs and lows of being put on a good title. <laughs> and yeah. then you'll be put on something like Shinobi on the 3DS. And Shinobi's uh-huh. a great day, game, but yeah. playing on the 3DS on the night shift for eight hours in 3D, like, it's, like, it's, it's not how it was supposed to be played, I don't no. think. <laughs> well, I, just, I had to test Game Boy stuff, like original like Game Boy stuff. Oh, and, wow. and back then, oh man, it, like it was, um, there was this uh, Star Trek Game Boy title that I think was done by, I could be wrong, but it might, I think it was done by Visual Concepts for Interplay. And it was, it was so hard. And the thing we always laughed at, because, you know, back then when you had to like submit to Nintendo to get approval to release the game, you actually had to videotape the, from start to finish. Like, and it had to be continual videotape. It could not be like you could pause it and then redo a level. It had to be a single playthrough. Like, and they would let you, of course, take a tape out and put a tape in. And when you, and then you had to actually put in a FedEx thing to Japan because they had to be approved in Japan. Like sometimes it was a long game. Like, let's say it was, let's say it was 40 hours. That means you had five, eight hour videotapes. And oh my God, you could see like almost grown, grown people crying when like someone like <laughs> unplugged the VCR by accident or something happened. Anyway, with the Star Trek Game Boy game, each of the testers that were working on it were sort of an expert in one part of it. And so we would just hand off the Game Boy. But a Game Boy, of course, you can't record on a VHS tape, right? So there was this thing called the Wide Boy, which you basically had this weird, like totally janky looking cable thing that plugged into it. Well, actually, it wasn't even plugged in. It was like the Game Boy had been taken apart and then it had been soldered into it. And, and it, <laughs> with the Game Boy on a TV, purely for the purpose of being able to videotape it. So, <laughs> I, it was sort of the, it was the sticks and stones and fire era, I think. Of. 
Oh, to bless the Game Boy. Like the Game Boy got me through my youth, mm-hmm. I think. Um Mario and the Six Golden Coins, I remember as a particular highlight. But um so a in a play, you're in a play for quite a while. And I feel like mm-hmm. this was like the foundation of your career and mm-hmm. like obviously you did incredible things even just starting there interplay itself had like incredible highs but it also had moments of turbulence um for want of a better word what was it like during both the highs and these moments of volatility a lot of what we do and what games are is entertainment right and so sometimes entertainment hits right and sometimes it hits wrong and sometimes it's a whole lot harder than you think it's going to be and sometimes you know it's never easier it's just sometimes it's much harder than than you think it is and and so I think what, you know, with Interplay, what was interesting, and I, I have to give Brian Fargo a whole lot of credit, is he put a lot of trust in a bunch of people who didn't know what the hell they were doing. But that was the industry back then. And like people have that negative comment, right? You know, give people enough rope to hang themselves. We all do that sometimes. But I think it's more of a, with him, it was just more of like, he really let us do what we thought was the right thing to do. And, and that spawned games like Fallout and Torment. He kind of stepped back and, and we had to like explain what we're doing and what was the box and, you know, stuff like that. But he really let us do it. You know, that's awesome. But then when you have a whole lot of people that are in an industry that's super new and things like that, then there can be things where things just really don't go well. And so I think that's what you kind of saw, you know, you saw at Interplay. You had products that could never have existed except at Interplay. And then I think they would, the counterpoint to that was really troubled products that kind of stumbled along for long periods of time. And that, and it, it kind of, ba- they balanced each, I don't know, balancing each other, that's the wrong way to say it. But I think, I think that was a challenge and that led to some of the turbulence. And there were so many inflection points in the industry that we, you know, we, nowadays we, we forget about, right? The whole thing of going like floppy disks to CDs, right? And that like was super hard on a lot of, a lot of companies because suddenly you went from, I'm going to get my, my things wrong, but like, was a three and a half inch disc was like 1.44 megabytes of data, right? To 700 megabytes, right? So, mm-hmm. and, um, and how laughingly, you know, we download games that could be a hundred gigs, right? So, which is just crazy. But, but that jump, I think Interplay did a pretty good job of sort of like dealing with that jump. Um, other companies didn't, but I think it was, it just overall was a super turbulent time that like sort of like, I don't know, 94, 95 to the 2000 period of like, is it PC? Is it console? Is it this? Is it that? And so, I mean, ultimately, Interplay weathered it for a long time. And, and I think, and obviously, a lot of incredible games came out. But I really, what I go back to and I, is really that thing of like, if, if Brian hadn't run Interplay that we did and put the trust in us, then we wouldn't have seen a lot of those awesome games. Yeah. And there were a lot of awesome games, right? Like, I, and I think that's the thing that's hard is when... Obviously, when things stopped working, well, certain games didn't come out into play. Like, didn't yeah. like obviously see the light day. It was tough because they they were incredible IPs, and one of them was Baldur's Gate. And right. I love Baldur's Gate, like Baldur's Gate Two, Baldur's Gate One, um, and the games that have gone on to like replicate and mm-hmm. use that as their, you know, aspiration. I guess their point of innovation. Did you? No, at the time when you were working on Baldur's Gate, did you know that you'd end up having this relationship with, you know, D&D RPGs and this influence over the RPG genre as a whole? No idea. I mean, it, we were just, I don't know who was talking. I was, we were in this conversation yesterday also about, like, about Fallout, right? Of like, just this whole, like, when we were working on Fallout, we had no idea that Fallout was going to become like this mega worldwide brand. 
right? Not at all. I mean, that just wasn't it, right? You know, and 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 you look at Baldur's Gate. I mean, so I'm this like you know super nerd in the Tustin High Gaming Club, mocked a little bit or a lot sometimes about you know D <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And you fast forward this, you know, 14 year old to when he's 26, so 12 years later, and now he's in charge of the exclusive, at that point, was an exclusive D&D license to the Forgotten Realms and Planescape. Um, mm. And Ravenloft was in there at some point, but I think dropped out. And so, I don't know, we were, again, it was so early in the industry that we were just really trying to make awesome games. I mean, a lot of it was really based upon our love and experience with tabletop role-playing games. Mm. Like, how could you have that experience? And I think what, you know, also maybe sometimes people don't remember is like that period of time for D&D was not a great time for tabletop D&D. You know, TSR was having a lot of financial problems. That's around the time when they were getting purchased by Wizards of the Coast. I think one of the things I, I'm super happy about what we were able to contribute to was also, and this is what we got from a lot of people after they played Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, was this thank you for making D&D game because I got to, one, go back and experience something that I love. But two, because, you know, this was controversial as we were making it, was putting multiplayer in it. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting multiplayer mode, and it's very de- divisive, where some people think it's awesome, and then a lot of people don't think it's awesome. Uh, but for the people that like it, like, they, they had said, hey, I got to get back together with my D&D, you know, friends from college and play through Baldur's Gate 1 and Baldur's Gate 2. But, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question there, I mean, we had no idea. I think that was what was also great about the industry at the time, we were not worried about, is this going to be the next awesome AAA game that is going to be at the top of the Steam charts? And like, we're just, hey, this is a cool game we're making and and hopefully does awesome. And then we'll go, to, go, go make another one. I mean, it wasn't as flippant as that, but it definitely was, it feels now sometimes the industry, and this is when you let it happen, right? Of where the success is like, so much rides on the success of a game that it feels like there's this can be this mm-hmm. giant weight on the team and the studio and management, the publisher's shoulders that it's, I don't know, as stressful or more stressful than it should be, but it, it just was a different time. And I think that led yeah. to us not getting ahead of ourselves and yeah. that we were making something for posterity. We were just a bunch of people making a fun D and D game. You can feel that though, right? Like when you play it, it feels like, a D&D campaign. So I, I just did it. I just played single player. Um, I remember Baldur's Gate 1 being incredibly difficult almost immediately. Baldur's Gate 2, I remember being a bit softer on the difficulty level. But what made it incredible when you were playing it, even like I played it on my own, was you would meet other parties who were trying to do the same thing as you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, NPC-led parties. And yeah. it was like they're trying to achieve what you're trying to achieve. And that felt incredible because you don't actually get that within D and D like the tabletop. It's, you know, it's, you have your DM and then you have your party of say four or five of you. And even though that's complete chaos, nine times out of 10, you don't have another party doing tabletop next to you playing the same campaign. And I think, I think that was one of the best things about Borders Gate was when, and I'm surprised more games haven't done that where you actually feel like you're part of something much bigger because actually there's NPCs doing what you're Mm -hmm. doing and you, you're going to have to, you know, meet them at some point. Yeah, I love Baldur's Gate. It's so good. So, <laughs> like, I know. I remember, like Baldur's Gate too. I remember because, like, I—I I mean, I have to admit, I, I didn't—I didn't finish Baldur's Gate too. But um, I think my game clocked in right before, like, right around when we shipped. 
150, 160 hours just into that like single playthrough that I had at the time. You know, I think Ray, Ray had even one that was like 200 hours or something like that. <laughs> um, just, I mean, insane. I mean, it is just crazy that this, you know, that game was not made by a lot of people and it was made in about 18 months. And it was because I think a lot of it was, it was just the focus on, I mean, what matters in a role-playing game is content. It's just that mm. content and the quests and the people you get to talk to and obviously the loot and spells and things like that as well. But but it just, I mean, I think Bioware just did an incredible job optimizing. I mean, that sounds so scientific, but, you know, optimizing how they were going to work on it. And they focused, they said, you know what, this is what people love. People love the RPG content. And that's mm. where we're going to take, I'm exaggerating here, but 97% of the team and they're just going to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. And you can feel that. You, you, mm -hmm. you, you know, when you play, you can feel it. You did leave Interplay. We, you founded Black Isle. How did that come about? So, because that's that's a big thing to do, like, because that was quite early on in your career, still, wasn't it? What was it that led you to doing that? You know, I think it was a number of things. You know, in the '90s, like when you got into games, there was almost just this. Well, you're eventually going to start your own studio. Like it was just a. Everyone just thought that it was just it was because <laughs> it was just not. At, it was the 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 price of failure were just. In some ways, it was easier to succeed and the price of failure wasn't as high. And so it just wasn't a scary thing. And on top of it, even though I was 33 when we started Obsidian, we were all in our 20s. So, mm. I mean, you're pretty indestructible in your 20s, right? And so you're like, and you don't necessarily have, you know, a significant other, a partner. You don't have kids. You don't have a house, a mortgage. And so it's that time. And so that's where, that's the time in the industry where we developed and so it was just always this thing. And so we always had this idea that we were going to start a studio. And then when Black Isle came around, then definitely was a group of people that we all liked making games of a certain type. And we talked, you know, and then, and, and so then, you know, I mean, it got to a point at some points where we talked about it. I mean, we never talked, we actually didn't ever talk about it a lot. It was just more, to be honest, it was really more of an understood thing. You know, and I don't want to be negative towards Interplay, but it got hard, you know, at Interplay. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of money. It was hard to get computers. Interplay was having a, a crisis of who they were and what they were doing. And it didn't feel like Black Isle was part of the future that they wanted for the company. And mm -hmm. so when you're in charge of the thing where it doesn't feel like that's really where they feel the company is going, then it's like, okay, well, I want to still do what I am doing. Like, I want to manage these type of games. I want to go do that. And so if the future isn't here, then, you know, let's try it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I think a lot of people out there are grateful that you you had to you did do that, like because it is it's very easy to stay where you are, right? Like yeah. it's very easy to oh, be yeah. like, I'm not happy with this, but I've got this security, and I do think you're right though. I think it's like you could, it'd be a lot harder to do that now because like the industry is it's not oversaturated, but it is it's very very competitive. Like you know, starting out an indie dev. I've got to ask you this because this has come up on quite a few episodes. Obviously, when we chat to our guests, mm -hmm. they talk about our favorite game. Obviously, this is why this is a bit of a, like a fanboy moment for me, but mine's Planescape Torment. Oh, cool. Uh, probably the only game, and well, definitely the first game I can remember sitting there playing on like a Pentium 2 or something like really, really old and ancient yep. and playing by like this window in the room and looking out and it was like, 7 p.m. So like the sunset, etc. And playing it all the way through the night until the sun started rising. And I remember just being just this moment. I've just been so content, like yeah. so genuinely happy. And 
I was out of the mortuary and like obviously I'd spoken to more a lot and it was just amazing. It was just, it was such an incredible game. And when you talk, like when people have played it, it's weird because often it comes up and it was like, yeah, that's my favorite game. That's my mm-hmm. favorite game. From a narrative perspective, from like a quest line, et cetera. I could obviously just go on and on with various superlatives. What was your involvement in Planescape Torment? It's interesting. It was at a very high level and then at a very low level. And what I mean by that, and, and so before I say anything, I have to give like an immense amount of credit to Chris Avalon, because he was really the kind of the powerhouse behind that. Um, Tim Donnelly, who was the lead artist, and uh, also Aaron Myers. And Aaron Campanello was one of the artists. He ended up doing like some alternate posters and stuff. And uh, Dan Spitzley was lead programmer. And, and what I did early on was say, we had a lot of Planescape. When I took over Black Isle, what would become Black Isle? There's a lot of Planescape games being made. It took a while, but we eventually then collapsed them all into Planescape Torment. And so really what I first did is I just said, hey, let's make a Planescape game using the Baldur's Gate engine. We don't want, like, let's really use the engine. Let's not go and say, okay, we're going to use the engine, but then we're going to go make it 3D. And no, 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 we're just going to really use the engine for what it is and just focus on content. And, but like, what can we do that actually makes it feel different? And that's where Chris, so and we kind of, at that point, it became more of a joint conversation. Pretty, this was a while, a long time ago, but it was more of where like, well, what we could do the characters in Baldur's Gate were fairly small, a little bit more focused on the combat. And so in this, we were like, well, what we could do is focus more, you know, move the camera in and focus more, like really focus on the characters and make these companions like much more unique. And then, you know, kind of focus on some other things, make, you know, sort of bigger screen animations and then, then figure out how to make Sigil really feel like a metropolis of demons and devils and yeah. and all that other kind of stuff. So that was really, so setting the box was really, you know, and then I said, and it's Planescape, so you have to go to three different planes. I said, like, okay, let's not just make it in Sigil, let's make it about Planescape. And it's escaping me. I have one of the things that I said, use the BG engine, goes to three door, goes to three, I forgot. There was, there was, there was one other thing that I said was a part of the box that's not coming to me. And, uh, and so that was, so that was at the high level when the project started. At the low level, what I did at towards the end is I... It's one of the games of the games I worked on where I played a ton. I finished it three or four times before the game came out and I played as different classes. And then what I did is the game was never meant to focus on combat. And but what I did is I just I really did at least work with the team on we need to make the combat a little bit better than it was, you know. And so I kind of there were certain areas that were a little bit more combat heavy. And so we just sort of I helped work with them to kind of tweak those areas. And then the last thing I did is I worked on the leveling, the progress of leveling, like handing out of experience points. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just came up with, for a system for Chris Avalon to say, okay, well, just give out experience points at these levels for these quests, blah, 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 blah. And then that is what created the progression for the game. So that's kind of what weirdly that was my talk very high level. And then I was at the very <laughs> low level as we were finishing up um, just to help, you know, round it out. Yeah, it's just an incredible game. But you, you did touch on it just then, like working at the high level and obviously mm-hmm. working... At the same time, like almost like a qualitative tester, you know, mm-hmm. like providing that feedback. The longer you were at Black Art, the more and more you obviously focused on the PR on the marketing side. Mm-hmm. Did you miss the development side? Did you miss being more focused on that? Was it just your role had naturally evolved as the studio got greater and greater notoriety? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing, I mean, I don't know, I've explained it, I don't know, I've talked about it in kind of different ways is, you know, I was the penguin that was pushed forward into the ocean, right, to, to deal with <laughs> <laughs> to deal with all the killer whales. No, I'm not going to make that analogy. I was the person that was 
in charge, right? And so mm. I needed to do the things that needed to be done that only someone in my position could do. I mean, that sounds really bland, but um, it, but it did mean ultimately as, you know, as, as Black L got bigger and, you know, even as Obsidian has gotten larger over the years, more and more my job does become, you know, contract negotiations and medical, you know, like figuring out how we're going to, you know, pay for our medical and, you know, budgeting all those things. Right. And so, mm. and I'm not bad at it. I'm like, I'm, I don't think I'm necessarily amazing at it, but I'm pretty good at it. And I've been doing it for so many years. So I have a lot of experience. So it sort of lends, it lends to it and it's still rewarding. I'm not saying it's not, I mean, it's annoying sometimes, but it's, it, you know, <laughs> it is that sense, you know, I've helped Black Elm and Obsidian be successful in the things that I've done. Uh, when it comes to development, you know, I got into the industry to make games, right? I mean, that's, mm. like, you know, I mean, I, you know, actually that sounds too definite. I just got in the industry, <laughs> in the industry. like I, you know, to be honest, like I don't like, again, we weren't so deliberate maybe when we were all first all working in the industry. It was like, hey, work in play, awesome. Should I fix a printer? Should I go, to <laughs> should I burn an EEPROM? Should I sweep up? Like it was just whatever. When I do get to work on games now, I do enjoy it a lot. Right. Mm. And, and maybe in the future, I don't know. I talk about it all the time, but maybe in the future I'll do it again. Cause I, I played, I've been game director at times on projects, taking over strike teams at times. Um, I've done bits and pieces, never for long periods of time. Maybe I will get to make a game again before I march off into the sunset. <laughs> you should, you should. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you about that a bit later though. Cause uh, I'm quite interested to hear what that would be. Mm-hmm. I suppose not, not to a sadder time, but to a different time with Interplay. And before we like start talking about Obsidian and obviously like the, the powerhouse Obsidian is, Interplay closed the label, right? They closed Black Hole, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day. And it does seem strange considering the titles that were in development at the time. And I know we touched upon this earlier, but what happened? What was like the fallout of that? Like, and how did that, how did you feel? Because obviously this is something you've created. Yeah. I mean, the very first off, I felt, I mean, I felt, I mean, felt bad for the people that got laid off, right? So mm-hmm. they closed the label and then they laid off, you know, a bunch of people. And, you know, I was a little frustrated, I forgot when it was, but I think it was, I mean, let's say 2002, at least six months, if not more before I, you know, before I left uh, Interplay. And then I took a presentation to sort of the, um, it wasn't really the board, but it was like all the heads of marketing, you know, the head of marketing PR Hervé, who was the president, and I kind of put this presentation together about like, why don't you sell Black Isle, right? Mm. And sell Black Isle with with Fallout and the Baldur's Gate license. And of course, you need to sign off from Wizard of the Coast at the time. But And I said, and I think you can get $20 million for it. And I mean, nowadays, it just sounds completely ridiculous that you sold the Baldur's <laughs> Gate license and Fallout for $20 million and that. that. And then and <laughs> the feedback that came back was, well, we don't think we can get that much, so it's not worth it. And I'm like... Okay. So a part of me was frustrated that it was like they didn't understand what they had and they didn't want to invest in it. Now, on the flip side, I, I also understood why, because they felt that they there was something unsuccessful happening at Interplay and they needed to try a different route. And that route increasingly was console game. And we mostly did PC games. Now, oddly, we also, through publishing Snowblind Studios, Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance, practically the most successful console game that than Interplay ever had, right? So like, it's, so it's not that we weren't a console, but we weren't like just trumpeting that, right? And I saw mm-hmm. that led, I think, to so Black Owl being sidelined and, and stuff like so that. So I guess that's it. So when it, you know, the answer to the question is, so it was frustrating because I, I felt like I, I wished that something could have happened to help Black Isle stay successful. 
Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting now because they've actually bought the company name back, haven't mm-hmm. they? Like Black Hours. How do you feel about that? I, you know, it's it's been so long now. I mean, it's like yeah. we're coming up on like more than 18 years. And mm-hmm. the only thing is, to be honest, the only frustration there is like I always wanted Black Isles to be the name of my own studio because the Black Isle is the ancestral home of the Urquharts, right? That's that, like, so that's kind of where that came from, the Black Isle. Yeah. And um so that's the only thing. I mean, like, it's so it's unless I buy it from them just so I can have it, right? It's uh, never something I'll be able to use ever again, right? And, uh, and so I don't know. So it's, I mean, hey, it's theirs. If they can be successful with it, awesome. Mm. It would be great to see if they could do something with it. Mm. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I know it's not the same, but I get that. You know, if you want to like, you know, when you're creating like a username for like Steam or like any kind of like PSN or Xbox Live. All the good ones are gone. And at least yours is, it needs to have a bond with what you want. Obviously yours is like a far deeper bond. And uh, I did actually read that somewhere, like the black hole. But then obviously that makes sense why you called Obsidian Obsidian, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's there. It's the same. It's the same meaning. But it's, it's the it's same kind same. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, and, and, we, and we tried to keep that kind of uh, thing. At one point, we, you know, we, we had, we created a kind of a sister company to Obsidian and not for any nefarious reasons or anything, but we just created a sister company, um, and it was called Dark Rock Industry Limited, which of course the the acronym is Drill, which we thought was funny. So I don't know. Sometimes we can have fun with things like that, but we we kind of kept the Dark Rock, you know, Obsidian, you know, I don't know, like thing going. Yeah. How did that How did that come about? Like, so because Obsidian's class is the successor to Black Isle, like you oh. know, that's a lot of people consider it the successor. Tell us about the founding of Obsidian, though. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I left Interplay Black Isle, I'm going to call April-ish, somewhere in there, 2003. I have to really go back. I should sometimes you wish, God, I should have really written some of this stuff down. So, like, you know, 18 years later, I can answer a question. And, um, but, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, um, I left in April and Chris Parker, Darren Monahan, Chris Avalon, Chris Jones left you know, soon after, and then a couple, and then a couple more people, Aaron Myers and Dan Spitzley kind of followed us at that point, you know, and we just were like, let's do it. Right. We're, we're still young enough. Um, we, some of us had kids or kids on the way and mortgages and felt like if we didn't do it now, we weren't going to do it. So, so we did it. I mean, maybe it was arrogant or, but we felt like we had a pretty good notoriety. You know, we both mm-hmm. like external development and internal development. And so that's a good story. You know, it means you understand the publishing side and the development side. And so that could make publishers more, you know, want to work with you. And so we just started talking to different people. Like we start, we, you know, we almost immediately started talking to Atari about Neverwinter Nights 2. Um, and this was like in early 2003. Uh, we were talking to LucasArts about using the Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance engine to do a sort of a Star Wars action RPG, which I which we would have made. That would have been cool um, with a little R2-D2 companion, I think was one of the ideas. And, you know, we pitched a lot of different stuff, you know, and our break really came from when ultimately, you know, it's funny how all these different decisions across the universe like happen, right? So Ray and Greg at BioWare, because they wanted to build BioWare into its own sort of world creator ip creator was like they wanted to go in essence make mass effect and not knights republic 2 and lucasarts wanted to follow up as quickly as possible on the success of knights republic 1 and so i got a call right we already really knew the engine i mean the engine because the infinity engine that made the you know um bg1 bg2 ice dale torment ice dale 2 
was the foundation for the both the Neverwinter Nights and Nitro Public Engine. And so we kind of already knew the technology. And so yeah. we got up and running very quickly. We were off to the races. That's mad, isn't it? it, it you know what's crazy is that that was your so that was your first title at Obsidian. Well, mm-hmm. that's the other one And again, like it was a success, right? Huge uh-huh. success. Yeah, geez. Hey, I've completed that as well. I think I've completed most of your game, weirdly. Like completed, I haven't <laughs> completed many games either. But um even uh, Dark Alliance, it's so mad because it was like 20 years ago, more than that, but a long time years ago. <laughs> Dark, yeah, like Dark Alliance on the, the PS2. Like yeah, PS2, that, yeah. I mean, that it was friend. eventually Xbox and GameCube, but quite a ways after um, yeah. the PS2 version. Again, but it was, it's mad that um, I'm surprised no one went for the action RPG Star Wars game, though, because it does feel like Jedi, you know, mm-hmm. Star Wars universe action RPG. That would work, right? I'd, there's parts of these ideas end up in other games as well, though. I guess with yourself, though, you've actually worked on or been a major influence in a lot of RPGs, like mm-hmm. big RPGs. Do you have a favorite, Do I have a favorite project? I'm proud of a number of things at once, right? So I'm proud of Baldur's Gate 1 because I made that happen. My boss at the time actually wanted me to turn the game down. And I didn't, I very rarely did this, but then I, I kind of went out into Interplay and found support from another VP and ex, you know explained to her the opportunity, showed her what had us, told her how we could use it. And then I had a relationship with Brian Fargo at the time, but not like we weren't, this was before I was even running Black Isles. And she called Brian up, he looked at it and just looked at both of us and said, sign it, right? And so I'm very proud of that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I am like proud of the fact that for Torment, I was I knew to kind of step back and let the team do what they do and make that game. It would, it would never have been a game that I would have made, you know, necessarily at the time in my career. I let them be, do what they wanted to do. Icewind Dale is, you know, a game where I look at and go, um, it's, Sounds so weird, but we were looking for a game like we were working on Fallout 3, actually, and it wasn't going well and Interplay was starting to have some financial issues. And so we needed some other product. And I just kind of came up with this. Let's do a dungeon crawl using the Baldur's Gate engine. And then we, someone said, let's do it in Icewind Dale. Right. And it was very it would have been very easy for people to go, oh, this is just some weird ass Baldur's Gate spinoff. It's just it's like a, not even a real ver- but everyone bought into what we were saying and the game reinforced that. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm super proud that, that we did that. KOTOR, you know, because it feels a distinct game in comparison to KOTOR 1, but it's not like yeah. different. It's not like, oh, this is some weird offshoot somewhere else. So mm-hmm. it's a great compliment. You know? And that's incredibly difficult to do because completely different dev team. They do actually feel like they're created by the same team, mm-hmm. but there's enough differences to obviously show like innovation that it is actually a sequel you don't often see that being achieved to that level of success so i think what happens is as creative people like we're very <laughs> can be very focused on our own creativity and we need to be because to you know you have to create something from nothing right and so that takes mm-hmm. a certain amount of ego belief in your abilities or you know or, or just not worrying about like the ramifications of things and i think sometimes when teams and we've done this as well you apply that to like the continuation of something you kind of get into this mode of like less focused on like how do we continue it and more focused on what what can we change and so Mm -hmm. i think a lot of teams get and and but i think ultimately we've done a great job and maybe this goes back to not circling way back to earlier what we're talking about but 
we came up in this period of time when we 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 all loved living in the D and D world. We loved living in that world. We didn't, I, at least for me myself, I didn't feel like I needed to go create another D and just wanted to make games within that world. And so when we were given something like South Park or Fall in Vegas or you know or Star Wars, it wasn't about saying we're going to make our version of this. It was about creating a chapter within that IP. Because it's about like people play a game in a property like that because they want to be in that property. They're not there to experience our cool new ideas. There should be some cool new ideas that are subtly in there about like that build upon the IP or the gameplay or things like that. But it shouldn't be like, well, I know that Star Wars is a lot about Jedi and spaceships, but we're going to make it purely about trading Wampa bits right mm. a trading sim right you know and i'm like whoa what's you know so i don't that's a stupid example but so i guess that's probably why we were i feel like we were successful you know when we played in those other worlds yeah i think it's hard to do right because i think you like you just said like that, that creativity you want to be like right i've got this ip mm-hmm. like i've got this license and i want to show the world like my version i think my mm-hmm. version is probably the best version no one goes out to create something bad they want to create something good right. and it's like right. <laughs> Yes, and I yes, think that's yes, the hard yes, thing. Is... Everyone's, everyone's <laughs> intentions are in the right place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And sometimes it's the execution which can be, you know, hit. But yeah, like, you know, Knights of the Old Republic 2, is it you, there was a big focus on the lightsaber, rebuilding mm-hmm. your lightsaber. And that was fantastic because in the first one, you were becoming a Jedi or a Sith. And it's like, now you're, this is your journey. Like, and But it wasn't just that, but it was interesting that, like you said, like he could just be an episode. If it was a show, it could have been an episode within a show. Just yeah, that absolutely. bit of yeah. your lightsaber. Because, and Stick of Truth, South Park Stick of Truth. Again, that could have been another, that could be multiple episodes. Oh, <laughs> well, and that's like, so a lot of times when, particularly with, you know, with Matt and Trey, particularly with Trey, because Trey's a huge gamer. Over a long period of time, we're trying to get to the, the best way of talking about the game. And, you know, ultimately how we all ended up started talking about it was just we called it a season of the show. Right. So because an episode of the show is focused on a singular thing. Right. Now, the game still has to have an ultimate singular point. Let's we need to move back from this idea of like being so focused on the one joke. Because, you know, that that has to play out now over, 20, you know, 15 to 20 hours, right? And so, like, we, it still needs to be made up of multiple smaller jokes that build to the more meta joke, right? And on, was, I think was also hard for Trey was he's used to, like, okay, he wakes up and, and you know, and we can actually watch this on, I think it's Six Days to Air or something on the Netflix special about them, right? I don't, actually, I don't know if it's on Netflix anymore, but it was. But say Trey sleeps all Thursday, wakes up Friday morning and kind of figures out, they have a loose idea of what the show is going to be, but then he figures out, okay, what's the topical thing that I want to talk about that we're then going to have on the air Wednesday, right? So like like just the submission process of our game is six weeks. So we will have finished all the jokes and then people are not going to play it for six weeks. So it is a very different structure, right? So, So it's interesting, like within that, how to make it feel like South Park, how it feel like a season and then recognize it has to be South Park, but different from how South Park normally gets made. Talking of, uh, I was just thinking about, um, obviously you mentioned Baldur's Gate, like it's, you know, one of the key moments in your career and obviously, <clears throat> you know, the favorite projects because of that, um, because obviously you made it happen. And that was like its infancy, its inception. And now you've got Baldur's Gate 3, mm-hmm. obviously being developed by Larian. Have you had a chance to play it? Have you followed the news on it? 
And so I played it a little bit. I, I, I feel like I have to apologize to Larian that I have not actually put more time into it. I mean, no, I'm super happy for them. I mean, they've been so successful. The Divinity games are, you know, incredible. How the Sven's like focused the company and how he's like embraced early access and he did it incredibly well. You know, we mean him were talking. We actually had not met until E3 of um, 2019, I think. And, you know, we'd exchanged some emails and, and Skype messages and stuff like that. We finally sat down and, you know, and he was fairly critical. He, he was basically, when I say fairly critical, like I need to put grammar in there. He was critical in a fair way <laughs> about, you know, about like how we handled like, um, the sh- you know, the, the launch of Eternity 2 and stuff like that, because Eternity 2 is an amazing game. And, um, and I feel like, you know, we could have done better there. Anyways, that's not Baldur's Gate 3. But, you know, Baldur's Gate 3 is interesting just because I, you know, we had started working on it at Interplay and we had gotten fairly far and Interplay lost the license. And so it was, we had to change. And that's when it then became Baldur's Gate 3, then became, in essence, Fallout 3. You know, Van Buren, I think was it's called Van Buren. And that was about, I left when that, no, we, I can't remember. We just were just starting it up or something like that. And Josh Sawyer was working, had worked on both. And then we started working on Baldur's Gate 3 2010-ish. And we've had other conversations with publishers and stuff like that. So in some ways, I'm envious. Like, I mean, this was mm. this is a brand that I, you know, I put a lot of my own self into and do not take that as like I, even though I put a lot of energy into it, I'm not the creative person that like, you know, the buyer gets all the credit for what Baldur's Gate is. Um, I picked the name. Let's 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 about you. Know, I mean, it happened, and I picked the name. Like, like I mean, I did more than that. But those are let's, let's just really distill it down. That like, if I if in the annals of Wikipedia, that's really all that should be listed for for what I did. So no, I I like I said, I'm envious. So I am really looking forward to actually assigning myself some time to actually sit down and and, and, and get into it. It happens with everything, right? Like you know, you you do something. And then, so you have your kids, and then they do something that you can no longer do. And uh-huh. I'm not saying that's exactly the same. It's probably a terrible analogy, but you experience it in a different way, I guess. Yeah. And um, you're going to experience it in a different way. And yeah, you just touched on actually Pillars of Eternity, like one and two. And am I correct in believing there's going to be an F, well, a first person RPG? Yeah. But in the Pillars world, in like the Pillars universe, is that correct? Yes. So it was uh, E3 of 2020, we announced uh, Avowed. And so Avowed is a first-person RPG within the Pillars universe. I like isometric RPGs. Mm-hmm. I think there's less and less of them, mm-hmm. but I think they have like a character. How do isometric RPGs evolve now? Because from a gameplay and a, like a feature perspective, it feels like in some ways they've plateaued. And many of the improvements are coming from the ratio and audio-visual like, enhancements. I don't know. I think it's maybe like... It's like any genre that you have to kind of what's what's the point of the genre. So and actually you brought it up before, which is like real time with pause, right? And versus turn based, right? And ultimately yeah. the with it with the eternity games, they're both. So the thing is to say, like with those with the isometric, okay, what's the point of these games and who are they for? Right. Yeah. And so I think like a lot what we talked a lot about is we talked about is if we were moving forward. Like, would we just go turn-based at this point? Is that really the better thing for this? Like, and and, it may, and also the thing is to ask the question of like, what can you accomplish in a genre or expression of a genre that you can't accomplish in another expression? So mm-hmm. if, if all an isometric RPG is, is just a cheaper way of making a bigger RPG, then that's probably not, because players don't care. Like they don't care that you spend a hundred million or five million. It doesn't, you know, like it doesn't matter, right? It's like, yeah. I mean, it's like, well, that's cool. Like, I mean, that's, that's all you get for that, right? And, <laughs> and, um, it's such a sad truth. 
And and it should be. I mean, actually, it should be that way because it doesn't matter. It's it's their twenty, thirty, forty, fifty dollars, sixty dollars, whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter if I spent we spent five or or a hundred. So I think that's maybe the way to look at it is is taking something like the isometric RPG forward is is what makes it special, what makes what gives it purpose, and not kind of focus on this. Oh, it's just like I said, it's just a cheaper way. It can't just be that. It cannot just be like we're making it because we can do it cheaper than this, right? Because yeah. because then I mean players can see through that. You know, there are a lot of turn-based games mm-hmm. outside of the RPG genre. Yeah. And so for me, and sometimes they're limited by their rule set or their, the type of genre they are to be turn-based. And I know turn-based is becoming increasingly popular, hasn't for quite a while now with like card games and even tactical RPGs and things like this. And um, XCOM is a great example of like turn-based being done extremely, like incredibly well. Civilization games. Mm-hmm. There are so many turn-based games. And I think that's probably why real-time RPGs from an isometric perspective, or even like first-person perspective, I think there are just, it's an opportunity, I guess. Yeah, I I totally agree. So so don't like when I, like me personally, right? Like I I (laughs) do like real-time with pause, but there also has to be a balance because there is this push. So you have to think, again, it's like thinking about who is this game for? So there are people who enjoy the incredible, like if there's an incredible complex game system, people can really enjoy that. I really enjoy systems like that. Mm-hmm. If you apply an incredibly complex game system to a real time with pause, how much can you really be, are you really just paying turn, you're pressing the space bar so much to understand <laughs> exactly what's going on and you have to do it in almost every single fight, then that is, is that turn bait, you know, where, where mm-hmm. I actually went back and, and I did this, I can't remember, probably about three years ago, I went back and I played Icewind Dale 2 and I need to go back again and play some of the, the Infinity Engine because those felt different. Because not that D&D is simple. It has lots of complexity in options, mm. but not necessarily moment-to-moment complexity. I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, you are having to make certain, you have to have make, you have to understand certain things about the weapon I'm using and the enemy, but it's a little bit more rock, paper, scissors than like, oh, well, but it has these seven defenses and this has six different things it can do. Like, and you're like, oh my God. And so I don't know. I mean, I'm wondering for real time with pause to continue also is to say, okay, anybody who's doing it would have to focus on a system that provides lots of options. Yeah. I do think um, it's a balance, isn't it? It's basically exactly what you're saying as well is in terms of there's also this, payoff of time right mm-hmm. like you have a budget right so obviously in my head it's just like a sandbox i have an infinite budget and you're just thinking right i want an incredibly complex system i want the rpg to be real time but to have all the benefits of turn-based and i think i'm just dreaming basically i think sometimes you can simplify i mean i hate to i mean simplify is the wrong way of saying it i think is is but a lot of it is is like what are we trying to do in any game that we make is we're we're trying to make it's fun and the and and you as a player to feel successful, right? So because we need we need to challenge you and then you need to feel successful at those challenges. Now some people, right? I think I was I, I think there was it was on Steam the other day and there was like levels of difficulty like you know story easy like they were trying to rate a game easy blah 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 hard super hard Demon Souls like oh, that was, yeah, yeah. is the hardest like or frustration level I forgot maybe that's what <laughs> I I've not thrown a lot of controllers in my life but playing Demon Souls the first time man. <laughs> Um, I think that's the thing is like looking at those and just going, okay, but like backing up and go for, I don't want to say the average person because that gets into weird conversations, but like for most of us playing this game, 
and we're of a type of player like this. We like this level of number complexity and we like this many of options on our characters and we want this many people in our party. And these are kind of good numbers, like four to six people in the party and three to five stats and, you know, 200 perks to choose from. And then once you get into the world, like feeling like making sure the player feels like they can be successful with like they're going to get challenged and not always going to succeed every single time. But you have this eventual march of success. Right. And just how do you you know, how do we make sure that happens? And so I guess that's maybe that's where I kind of bring it back to when thinking about like, how do you move something forward like like a uh, real time with pause game? Incremental achievements within a game. Mm -hmm. So like you like you just said, like you do have these moments of success, but you have to make them yeah challenging enough that they it feels like a challenge. So you Mm -hmm. do feel rewarded, but actually they've got to be easy enough so you can achieve them. Last week, um, I had on uh, Warren Spector, mm-hmm. um, who you know is uh, created Deus Ex, and he said like his thing with how he designs and how he approaches like game creation is well, there's two two. One is cause consequence recovery in terms of like the difficulty level and you know those incremental successes, how mm-hmm. you're supposed to eventually get there. But the other part is. If you're not very good at shooting, then you can do stealth. If you're not very good at stealth, then you can hack and so on. So he very much builds worlds like that. However, we were talking about classes, right? Because I said, well, it's great that you can do like stealth and you can decide to shoot your way through or stealth your way through. But actually, that decision is often taken out of like the player's hands. Mm -hmm. Almost immediately, you make that decision. And I love classes. I love reading about classes. I love how varied they are. And I love, if you're playing a multiplayer game, you feel it. D&D, for example, obviously, you're like the wizard, right? Or you're mm-hmm. a priest and you have a responsibility that no one else can match. And whenever you achieve something, you know no one else in the group can achieve it and you get right. great success and it's repeated in games. However, it does mean games are created and often you're deciding how you're going to play it straight away. What are your thoughts on classes? Uh it has to do with the game. I know hundreds of people have said this before, but the best way to look at it is that when you have a game like Baldur's Gate that has a party and you have a game mm-hmm. like um, Fallen Vegas, you know, which is, I mean, you can have companions, but it's basically just you. The six party members that make up the party in, in Baldur's Gate all create one character that has all these abilities. And then you have the same thing over here. Because still, even with your party of six, you are you, you are making some decisions about how you want to emphasize whether it's, you know, damage versus tanks versus um, mm. healing versus this, you know, it, because you're still choosing which classes and what number of each class you're going to have in that party. And then, but over here, any game that where you're playing in like Skyrim or, you know, Fall in Vegas, even games in some with like, like companions with, you know, with um, Outer Worlds and Mass Effect, your character is a fighter, magic user, thief, cleric. Yeah. Like they all are. Right. That just, just yeah. that's what they are. And they just have different elements. So basically what it is, is we just take the classes and we, we put them all in and make the player choose how much they want to invest in each of those classes within the character itself. And then people can then choose to be who they want to be. And that's like how the perk systems work. Right. So like if you can then if you take go and you're looking back at like the original fallouts, you know, when Fallout one, which I always thought it was entertaining that Fallout one, we call them perks and then. D&D third edition, they were called perks. Um, um, you know, anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so that's actually so that when you create this tree of perks that are dependent upon one each other, you then mm-hmm. allow the player, like people can then go, well, I want to be a sharpshooter. I want to be, I want to be a sniper. Right. And so they're still going to be able to heal, 
right, to a certain level. But then they can, like, keep on going into this route so then they can play this style of character. Like, another way to look at it is, like, healing potions in D&D are pretty expensive because you, have, you do have a cleric, right? Um, stim packs are everywhere in Fallout. So, like, I mean, you can still buy them and you find them. I don't know. That's the balance, I guess. Is I, I guess so. I don't know if I'd really answer the question of like, <laughs> what it should be, but I think ultimately it's, it really is. It's going to be based upon the expression of the game you are making. Um, mm. And if do you want the player to be a lone wolf? When they have to be a lone wolf, then they need the abilities to survive, which means having some elements of those things. Like, and and I think also like the thing is, I always want us to be careful of it is. So it's rewarding when you choose like, hey, I'm going to put some extra points into lock picking, right? So now I go into this thing and now I can open all the locks. Where if I didn't, I go into this thing and I can't open all the locks. There's a line somewhere for players where they're like, F you, game designer, because <laughs> you basically said I have to put them on locks because or I have to put it all on lock picking because half the chests in this dungeon are beyond my ability, right? So And so then that's where you have to be like careful of like how class ish you go within the mm. character i think it's so tough isn't it when everything becomes the same then you no longer and i know like mmos really struggle with this because yes. their big feature is often new classes right like mm-hmm. wow wow does it like final fantasy and it's obviously they're great games but the issue is is how many ways can you do damage yeah it's just interesting isn't it it's it's, it's fascinating to watch and like experience but yeah, I, I don't like homogenization. I, I like, you know, if I can't open a lock in a game, I'm like, I love that because I'm like, God, like yeah. someone else is going to be able to open that lock yep. and mm-hmm. they're going to have a different, completely different, like a leprechaun could jump out and like attack them and they get teleported to a world full of leprechauns. I don't know, but it's like they're going to have a completely different experience to what I am just mm-hmm. because of that decision. You have to have meaningful decisions. They've got to be meaningful, but they can't be absolute in the sense of, you know, you're locked off from massive parts of the game. Because, like that's the thing of like, yeah. be super careful. Like I think one of the things we all try to do is to say like, when a player makes a decision, no matter what it is, it needs to be rewarding. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's that that's weird because a lot of people are like, well, I chose to, you know, and I, I chose to shoot grandma rather than help her across the street. <laughs> we then need to make that rewarding. What is, well, then you got to take, you got to take all her crap, right? You know, she has to yeah. $100,000 on her. So that's <laughs> a bad example, right? But, but again, it's like, Okay, then you're known as the grandma killer. And so when you show him in the car, he goes, oh, dude, you kill grandmas. Like, here's a beer. Like, I don't want anything to do with you. Like, again, it's like this, oh, so I got notoriety, which is a reward, right? So, like, that's that's the – so you try to, like, always make sure that whatever you're doing is, is a reward. And reward can – you know, the word can get caught up in this, like, well, it's money or an item or a thing like that. No, it can be the world – you're rewarded by the world does something based upon the choices that you make. What we've tried in, you know, more recently is it's not just like a one number that tracks your karma or your reputation or things like that. It's like, well, you have bad reputation, you have good reputation and they're tracked Mm. separately. So we can kind of understand that about how you're acting within the world. I think that's much better. I think that's what you want. You need greater interaction between the player and the world Mm -hmm. rather than just through the character. And I think a lot of that comes down to what your morality becomes because mm-hmm. they're your decisions but your character's having to deal with it okay last couple of questions sure. and then i will let you go but <laughs> obviously during this like during the last hour we've obviously spoken a lot about all these these massive titles like right all of them and like you're hu- incredibly successful and like had a huge influence over the over video games as a whole what would you attribute your success to 
Hmm, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think it's a number of things. It sounds lame to say, but early on in my career, I would say luck in right place, right time. You know, I mean, oddly, <laughs> um, just like how, I mean, I happened to grow up in Orange County where Interplay was here. And I luckily had a friend who was in a D&D game with someone who worked at Interplay that got him a job who, and then he got me a job, right? So like, that's just the universe, right? I, I think after that, I mean, I, you know, and maybe it's a platitude, but I would say I worked hard. Like I really did, you know, between 1996. And this is not like, I know there's a lot of conversation about crunch time in our industry and, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, so I'm not trying to make a comment about this is right or wrong. I'm just going to say what I did, which is I worked six, seven days a week from 1996 to 2001 and, and um, 2000. Yeah, the end of 2000 BG2 shipped. I didn't take a whole lot of days off, but I was enjoying it. And I could do it because I was in my 20s and I was in the right place to do it. And, and then again, this is not to say that that's how the industry should be or anything like that. It just, that's what it was. And I worked hard, right? I worked hard within an environment that my work had impact, right? And I think that was what made it where I wasn't necessarily burnt out. I was tired at times, of course, you know, and I did take, obviously, there was times I'd take a few days off and things like that. But that was what lent to my success was I was able to be impactful in an organization that let me be impactful. The last couple of things that has really helped me is I am interested in how games are made. So I'm not just interested in like, hey, it would be cool if we made a game about a minotaur that carries around, I don't know, a chainsaw, you know, like, like I like, Ooh, you know, but it's more of like, well, how can we do that? Like, how can we get the most gameplay hours to this person? Like what tools do we need and how do we organize the team and how, like, to me, it's a big puzzle. And so I think that success in the game industry, particularly at the senior levels, it has to be about, you have to be inquisitive and you have to be wanting to understand and, and, and you want to have to do better every time. Um, and that would be the last thing I would say is like, I, you know, and I, I talk about this sometimes is, I'm going to make a bunch of mistakes today, like a lot of them, right? And I don't mean this to be sort of, I don't know, Tony Robbins or New Agey or anything like that. But <laughs> but uh, next morning, I have to not worry about it anymore. Can't dwell on it because if you dwell, like I can't, I can't change the past. I can yeah. only change the future, right? And so I think by trying, and I'm not always successful at this, but I think that mindset of in game development is super helpful in that you're just like, okay, let's put all that behind. Yes, we totally screwed up. We did that wrong. This is thing. We lost that license or that person quit or this engine's not working out or it's all, those are all true. And we can sit here and talk about them for the next eight hours about what was us, you know, mm-hmm. or what we could do is say, what do we do as of this minute? You know, and yeah. and we applied that, um, you know, we went through hard times at Obsidian and we had layoffs and, and that was how we applied it. it was we if something bad happened, we just got together and said, OK, what are we going to do about it? And then we came up with a plan and then we got in front of everybody and told everybody this is the bad thing that happened and this is what we're going to do about it. And then we just marched forward. Right. And so that's what it is. It's it's just a constant moving forward and not dwelling on the past. And I think as for me personally, and as you know, and our and Obsidian and Black Isle as organizations, I think that's what led to the longevity. I think it's a great answer. It's interesting as well, isn't it? Just this constantly moving forward, mm-hmm. constantly working on. I do like that it is the early element of your success. Anyway, is very much like luck. You're like, yeah, I was lucky. It's the right time, right place. But actually, 
seizing the opportunity by being, well, I'm just going to apply myself because mm-hmm. I enjoy this. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to work for five years and for five years, I'm going to work six, seven days, but actually it's because I want to achieve something. Mm-hmm. And I think perseverance, I think can go an incredibly long way. Um, I always try and tell my son, you know, like passion, enthusiasm, and are willing to want to achieve right. something will often go a lot further than just skill. It's, it's not a straightforward answer, but it's like a... <laughs> It's an art, you know, because there's always different reasons for success. Yes. But I like that it's just like you've got to work hard. You, you got to have a bit of luck, but yeah, I, I and you can see you know, it. Constantly educate yourself. I mean, I read. I still, I'm not as good at, as I used to be, but I read business books. I talk to people mm-hmm. in the industry, and you know, the idea is to you to keep on learning. You know, I mean, that's what's amazing about our industry is like we we get to keep on pushing forward and staying on the bleeding edge of technology. Sometimes, even when it's super frustrating and. And, but a lot of it is just continually learning. So, and the one thing I was going to, I was going to back up a teeny bit because, you know, and, and uh, just to speak to like when I said, Hey, I worked all these hours. Um, I think it's important to say, like, I know I kind of already caveated it, but I'd just say it just for everybody, particularly at Obsidian, we've had very few points in time where we ask people to work extra. Um, and it was mm-hmm. for short periods of time. It is not a part of our culture. Um, I don't, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in people having to work, you know, 80 hours a week for months on end. And so it's not a, we don't, we don't use it as a management technique. We don't, you know, we don't Mm. build our schedules around it. We've really not done it ever since we even started Obsidian. We're much more open about talking about it over the last, you know, eight, 10 years of like being very blunt and say, look, this, we don't do this. But I would say that's something developers need to be super careful about. Um, yeah. you know, there will always be crunch because we're creative and we're trying to get stuff done. That's not me promoting it. It's just, it's acknowledging it. And our mm-hmm. job as people who run studios and our managers is to constantly work against it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's probably the best, it's probably is the best way to say it. So, yeah, I guess like the last thing I really want to know is like, you, you touched upon this earlier, like, you know, going back into game design at some point, like mm-hmm. maybe, you know, doing either what's next for you or if you're going to make something, is there a particular license you'd like to work with? What is it? So, so I think about it a lot. I mean, for me, it really is. So it's it's an RPG, right? I'm obviously, it's dumb to say. But, um, <laughs> it is because for me, it's about putting people in worlds, right? And then letting them become part of this world like so whatever i mean that's my main thing i mean it applies to all the games even whatever i make that i would you know do is that and and the things that I, you know, interest me is like like i really enjoy like the lucifer tv show on netflix i love okay. um shadow run there's this book series and i can't remember the author this second but it's called the night side and it's kind of like a flavor of you know again of like a little bit like lucifer and you know and stuff like that so i don't know i think if I were to do something, I, it's sort of something in that kind of near future. And that's what it is. That's the stuff I've liked, you know? I mean, now when I was playing RPGs and as a teenager, I loved Twilight 2000, but I don't know that that resonates and most people probably don't even know what it is. Ultimately, what I'd say there is like, I want to focus on the world. What is this kind of world? How is it put together? You know, and kind of go from there. Probably have elements of that stuff, you know, would, would be my guess. Okay, great. That's brilliant. <laughs> no, no idea what's going to happen, but um, <laughs> um, Fergus, it's been like it's been you know an honor. It's been an incredible pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. No, it's been awesome um, to talk. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Um, just a quick note: uh, the opinions obviously voiced today are. Focuses on my own. Um, they do not represent the companies that we work for. And if you want to reach out to us, you can at the game dev show at pgw.com. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. It was awesome.
game over.